Before I got my first science writing job, I was a writer for Groupon. I wrote the deals. You know, for $25, you get an appetizer, two entrees, and a dessert, a $50 value. Yeah, I also wrote the business descriptions, and if the deal was particularly complicated, I'd write an explanation of what exactly it involved. And a lot of those explanations were on hair removal deals. You know that Twitter meme that asks what you could talk about for 30 minutes with no preparation? Thanks to Groupon, my answer is hair removal methods. Yeah. There's waxing, where someone slathers your skin with hot wax and then yanks it off, taking the hair with it. There's sugaring, which is basically the same deal using liquid sugar, but people claim it's gentler? I don't know. There's threading, where someone uses loops of thread to kind of lasso the hairs and pluck them out. There's electrolysis, which uses an electric current to zap individual hairs, hopefully permanently. And there's laser hair removal, which uses a laser to basically burn the hair follicle so it doesn't grow back. And then there are all the places you can use these methods. Eyebrows, upper lip, chin, sideburns, armpits, nipples, navel, arms, legs, and lest we forget, pubic hair. Do you want a Brazilian, which takes everything off from front to back? Or would you like to leave the rectangle, affectionately known as a landing strip? Maybe a triangle? You can always decorate the area with some rhinestones if you add on vajazzling for $49.99. There are so many ways to remove body hair. And by extension, so many ways for your body hair to be wrong. It wasn't always this way. In fact, centuries ago, it was the hairless bodies that the powerful thought were wrong. Today, we're talking body hair. Why we have it, why we get rid of it, and where we go from here. I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science, the podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask. to look a few decades back to see how much body hairstyles transform from era to era. I mean, 1970s porn, enough said, right? So it might not be surprising that if you look even farther back, that transformation is magnified. It's changed dramatically over time. That's Rebecca Herzig. She's the author of the book Plucked, A History of Hair Removal, along with several other books. And she says that back when Europeans were landing in the so-called New World, 
Their rules about face and body hair were basically the polar opposite of what Americans are today. At the beginning of what we might now call U.S. history, body hair was considered ordinary and normal. And if bodies were seen as especially smooth, like the Europeans thought the native body seemed, they were seen as somehow different or strange. Yeah, that's right. In the real Pocahontas story, John Smith wasn't as curious about native clothing or customs as he was with Pocahontas's pit hair. Or more accurately, her lack thereof. The Europeans thought that those people were distinctive in many ways. And one of the ways in which Europeans were most convinced that they were distinctive is that they removed all their body hair. Or at least they appeared to have less body hair than the Europeans understood themselves to have. So the Europeans were completely obsessed with this and wrote all kinds of letters, treatises, studies, all kinds of things, trying to figure out exactly how much hair Native people might have and if they had less hair because their bodies were different fundamentally or because they were spending a lot of time removing it. And this sort of obsession went on for several hundred years. Um, There's all kinds of scientific treaties, really, that went on right up until sort of the mid-19th century with people trying to figure out what the story was here. And as you might expect, this obsession wasn't harmless. Europeans used it as a reason why taking over their land was totally fine, actually. The Europeans were pretty sure, Europeans and then European Americans were pretty sure that beard growth said something about intellectual ability, capacity for reason, capacity for self-governance. And they saw what they saw as the fact that Native people had less hair, didn't have beards. That's what they said, that they were beardless as a sign that they probably weren't going to be able to govern themselves. And they, you know, it was probably okay to colonize them all because they didn't have beards. And all kinds of experts who listeners would be familiar with, Linnaeus, you know, the person who gave us scientific classification, had a whole categorization of types of people and their abilities, their relative abilities for reason, and their hair kind of all linked in a table. So you could see how they all mapped onto one another. And a lot of other people we would call scientists, they didn't call themselves scientists, but we would call scientists of the 18th and 19th century then picked up on this idea. Buffon, Darwin was another one. Um, Thomas Jefferson wrote about beards and what they signaled and all those kinds of things. Once colonization was completed enough, it's obviously still ongoing, but was completed enough that whites had kind of taken over as much of the land as they wanted in the United States, this debate about beards kind of went away and basically died down. And the question about racial classification here shifted to women and women's bodies and how much was the right amount of hair for them and which doctors were going to tell them that in which we're going to provide the therapies to adjust bodies the way they needed to be and blah, 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 blah. But for the first period of American history, the focus really was on men and hair. People weren't really writing about much or caring that much about women and hair. And women and girls might have been doing their own things in their own home kitchens, but they weren't the subject of kind of conversation with respect to body hair. That shifted in the kind of mid to late 19th century. And again, I think Darwin was a major character in that shift. 
Wait, what's this about Darwin? The unassuming guy who gave us the theory of evolution by natural selection, who loved his swallows and his bugs, who wrote letters to his friends about his indigestion? Science's Santa Claus? He has something to do with this? In the book I wrote about this called Plugs, I argued that Darwin had a whole lot to do about this and the kind of diffusion of Darwin's ideas that humans are connected to animals in a fundamental biological way. And it created a sort of push to mark out the distinctions between people and animals a little more clearly. And because body hair is so malleable, it's it's one of the things you can use to do that. It wasn't Darwin alone. It isn't like he wrote a book and then everybody started kind of changing what they were doing in their everyday lives. But the way that Darwin's evolutionary ideas got picked up in popular culture, in professional medicine, in debates about immigration and so on... You can kind of see the influence of that all over the place. And so a kind of transformation of events in the late 19th, early 20th century, I think, converged to make hair suddenly seem dirty, unhygienic, foreign, racializing, criminalizing, stigmatizing, all these kinds of things in a way that the culture at the time made sort of white ascendancy want to distance itself from. Right. So... It wasn't like Darwin actually said anything about hair and humans and evolution. It was more like his ideas kind of suggested that hairy bodies were less evolved. Oh, no, no. Darwin said a lot about hair. Darwin was one of those European naturalists who was obsessed (laughs) with body hair and how much people had and why they had different amounts and how we should understand this. Darwin, how could you? If you think about the ways in which bodies are different, and especially the ways in which that we might now lump people into what are often called racial categories, but are just arbitrary, right? You take a whole bunch of different people and you say, why are we lumping these people in one group and these people in another? But Darwin was interested in all those differences, why some people are taller than others, why some people have um, stockier limbs than others, why some people have thicker eyebrows than others, why some people have wider feet. You know, he was absolutely obsessed with all of these kinds of differences, but he wasn't just interested in like taxonomizing. How are we going to divide these people up into different groups based on the differences that we're seeing? He was also interested in where those differences came from. And that's, of course, where the principle of evolution comes in. But for Darwin, body hair was the key (laughs) to that principle of evolution, because as he famously decided, the ways that the human species especially has differentiated itself is through mate choice, through especially female mate choice. That was very controversial at the time. And he has a whole passage where he decides that it must be the aesthetic appeal of some bodies, like smoother bodies over hairier bodies, that led to our hairy ancestors choosing less hairy ancestors, you know, less hairy ancestors to mate with. And that proceeded over time to make human beings the hairless ape as compared to, you know, chimpanzees and bonobos and everything else. And even at the time he was writing this, people thought this was such an outrageously laughable explanation for how differences come to be that one person wrote a whole book length satire of this idea, this specific idea about hairy apes and, you know, humans becoming the non-hairy ape and all this sort of thing. 
So Darwin had a lot to say about hair. He talked about eyebrows. He talked about plucking. He talked about <laughs> beards. He was very into beards. <laughs> and which people had, you know, faker beards and what that told us about them as, you know, as creatures, as organisms. And you also write that this idea isn't gone, right? Like there are people think that, that we shave because of evolution. A lot of people, a lot of people. In fact, if, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you just, you know, go have dinner with some people in your household and say, why do you think people started to remove their hair? I'll bet somewhere in that dinner conversation, um, somebody will end up talking about evolution. And we, we get these ideas from, from Darwin and especially from the book, The Descent of Man. You can find the, the same ideas there. But there's a whole bunch of physical anthropologists and evolutionary theorists and other people who still work on this question, and they, they haven't really been able to crack it. People have done a lot of work studying lice and the genetic evolution of different strains of lice and have kind of found that changes in lice appear to have, especially pubic lice, I should say, have something to do with maybe changes in pubic hair removal practices. And so this might explain why some hair goes away because, you know, if lice find it more difficult to attach, that would explain, you know, why maybe people evolve to have less hair over time. But it, it doesn't really because there's plenty of other hairy mammals <laughs> that have succeeded and competed just fine with plenty of hair. So, yeah, it's a debate that keeps going and people haven't really gotten to the bottom of in terms of its sort of scientific explanation. And by by... It, you mean why we don't have as much hair as like chimpanzees? Exactly. Right, right. Even before people start waxing or shaving, the species called Homo sapiens tends to have less body hair per, per square inch or per square centimeter than, you know, the other hairier, um, <laughs> hairier mammals. My personal favorite theory for why humans have less hair than their primate cousins not because I believe it in the slightest, just because it's so out there and fun to bring up at a party, is called the aquatic ape hypothesis. This comes from a 1960 New Scientist article by marine biologist Alistair Hardy. Here's how this one goes. Life began in the ocean, but even after some animals evolved for existence on land, many returned back to the water. Whales and dolphins did, so did seals, penguins, crocodiles, even otters and polar bears kind of count. Hardy was basically like, look, whales used to be furry, four-legged land animals. This is true, by the way. Whales still have a vestigial hip bone just hanging out, unattached to anything. It is the coolest fact I know about evolution. But anyway, whales were furry, four-legged land animals, and then they lost their fur. What if we lost our fur because we lived in aquatic lifestyle for a while? I mean, this would explain why we have more fat than our primate cousins, and wading in water would be a great way to practice walking upright since you weigh less in water. But there are some glaring problems with this idea. For one thing, uh, whales are fully aquatic mammals. We should really be comparing ourselves with semi-aquatic mammals like seals and otters, which are furry as all heck. We've also discovered a lot more ancient hominins since the 1960s, and none of them point to an aquatic lifestyle. Instead, heat adaptation is the leading explanation for why we got so hairless. When our ancestors moved from the forests to the savanna, those who could keep cool during midday hunts were more likely to survive and reproduce. 
Since we also learned to build fires and make clothing, we could still stay warm at night without a, you know, natural fur coat. It's also possible that this is just one of many factors that led us to shed a lot of our body hair. In any case, the categorization of body hair did not end with Darwin. In pretty much every cultural location I was able to find, body hair, the appearance of body hair and how people treat body hair, which body hair they display and so on, is used for social stratification, you know, for marking identity and rank or for changing identity and rank. So depending on the culture, people might remove hair, you know, as a mourning practice or as a uh, as a marital practice, you know, to prepare oneself for marriage, to prepare a body for burial. You know, there's all kinds of ways in which hair removal might be used in the U.S., which I studied most closely. Hair is generally used to lump people into different social groups for then marginalization or inclusion. So people in uh, mental institutions have been studied and the people who were studying them determined that they were hairier than, quote, non-insane. Um, so it's been used as a sign of sort of mental instability in that way. In the early 20th century, there became a kind of panic that maybe a, a lot of women were becoming interested in being romantically and sexually involved with other women. And all kinds of people started studying the amount of hair on young women who seemed to be interested in same-sex relationships and finding that they were hairier. So it became pretty quickly a sign of lesbianism or queerness in that way in the early 20th century. And then people leaned on young women to treat their body hair for that reason. So no one would think that they were lesbian or queer in a kind of explicitly homophobic way. And it's been used since before Darwin, since, again, the earliest European contact and colonization of the Americas as a way to mark racial groupings. And starting in the 19th century, all kinds of people started studying bodies and measuring hairs, like actually like counting, <laughs> counting actual hairs on skin and on parts of the body in order to try to classify both social groups and also sexual distinctions. How much hair did men have on this part of the body and women have on this part of their body and men of different races and women of different races? And how did that all compare? In the U.S. Civil War, a statistician was hired to complete a giant compendium of the kind of measurements and characteristics of the enlisted soldiers in the Northern Army, uh, in the Union Army. And this became a very important work of statistics. It kind of set the tone for a lot of work that would be done on human populations in the late 19th century. But there's a whole passage in there where it's reported that observers were sent to observe soldiers while they were bathing and keep track of how much hair that they could see on their bodies, like peeping through the bushes to see these naked people while they were bathing and to write it down and then make their best racial classification. So these were all people they understood as being men. So this is all just male bodies, but they were saying, you know, the Norwegians had this and the Germans had this and the Irish had this. And they were considering these racial differences in amounts of hair growth. And uh, then they included this table in the statistical compendium that came out <laughs> came out during the war. So a lot of interest in difference. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like it's important to ask, I mean, all this obsession with race and hair, 
is there actual data that different ethnic groups have different amounts of hair? Do we actually know that? Well, it, de- it depends on how you want to define the ethnic group, right? And right. which age and which gender and whether they're taking pharmaceuticals or not, whether they've removed their hair or not. And one of the things that amazes me about the scientific and medical research that's been done on this is even in published scientific papers, they don't often specify whether they bothered to ask the subject whether they'd been removing their hair before they started <laughs> observing them. So there's, it's really hard to know what baseline was before people start manipulating, you know, the way appearances look. And the, the one place where I've seen some self-reflection about this is in the pediatric medical literature, because there's specific standards known as the Tanner stages that pediatricians use for assessing whether a person is entered puberty or how far along they are. They're various stages. And if you have these signs, you're in this stage. If you have those signs, you've moved into the latter stage. But pediatricians have realized because pubic hair removal, genital hair growth, which was always considered one of the signs of puberty, is now so affected by these changing cultural norms, you know, kids shaping or removing their genital hair in ways that their their parents or families won't even know about. You know, they're just finding hair and they're plucking it out because they're seeing porn at such young ages where all of the models and actors don't have body hair that pediatricians realize they can't be quite sure what Tanner states <laughs> the people they're looking at might be in because they might not have genital hair, but it doesn't mean they have an inner puberty in the way it would have meant, you know, some time ago. It might just mean that they've been watching a lot of porn on their phones and so they decided to start removing all their hair and nobody realized that. So it looks like they haven't had any genital hair growth yet, but the pediatricians are realizing that's not necessarily the case. They're about the only ones I've <laughs> found in the literature who are who are thoughtful and mindful about asking their subjects, you know, so what have you been practicing with respect to this kind of grooming before they start saying what they're seeing on the bodies they're looking at. But why do we feel the need to remove our body hair in the first place? Well, there are also some evolutionary explanations for that. And they're pretty weird. It's mostly some sort of unconscious pressure is the explanation on the person who's removing it, that it will make them more resistant to lice or other invasive species. Although certainly nobody I know who's ever shaved their legs in the morning thinks, and now I'm preparing my legs to be more resistant to lice and other invasive species. So some people have also posited that it makes people more sexual attractive to a heterosexual mate who isn't going to mate with them and they will reproduce more and then they'll have more babies who also like to remove their hair. You know, that that starts to break down pretty quickly when you think about the variation in cultural practices around hair removal and that cultures who don't remove as much hair seem to reproduce just as successfully as cultures that do. So it, that part doesn't really hold up so well. Is it a youth thing? Uh, certainly a lot of people have said that the appeal of hair removal is it, it makes the body look more youthful, pre-pubertal, you know, um, and there's a lot of pornographers for sure who have picked up on that idea and have displayed spreads of people, especially, especially young women without any body hair, you know, so with their pubic hair removed and their armpit hair removed and things and displayed them as sort of 
adolescence, early adolescence. But again, that varies from culture to culture and from historical period to historical period. You can definitely find just as much pornography where the point of the pornography is to show a whole bunch of abundant body hair on the model. So it doesn't, it's not a universal enough finding to say, obviously youthful pre-adolescent appearance is more sexually desirable for viewers. And that's why we do it because it you know, increases evolutionary fitness in that way. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of the evolutionary explanation for why girls like pink and boys like blue. Yes. And they're like, oh, well, girls, let, you know, they have to find berries. But it's like, well, boys, <laughs> it, pink was for boys in like the 1930s. So yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Look it up. Like, take this quote from a 1918 issue of the trade publication Earnshaw's Infants Department. Quote, The generally accepted rule is pink for the boys and blue for the girls. The reason is that pink, being a more decided and stronger color, is more suitable for the boy, while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. And yet... A study as recently as 2007 suggested that women prefer pink because it helped them find berries. Because as we all know, all berries are pink. There are no blue berries. I, I mean, uh, Darwin was undeniably brilliant and I follow evolutionary science. I mean, you can just watch, you know, microbes e evolve in the lab and understand that evolution is actually happening. You know, so that part all makes sense to me, but certainly the evolutionary explanation for a lot of human grooming practices, they don't add up once you, you know, sit down with them for a bit. And a, a lot of people have tried to make evolutionary arguments for distinctive cultural practices like that. And again, just the fact that these practices vary so much from place to place and from t time period to time period allows you to see that there's not a an underlying instinctual imperative. It just serves interests at certain moments. Yeah, it's like just style, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Style is one of those things that's hard to put your finger on. Like, why did I and other kids in my grade used to think jean legs should be the diameter of manhole covers? No one knows. But often, if you dig down deep enough, one element always seems to lie in advertising. And that's absolutely true of women's hair removal. And it's definitely the case that Gillette started marketing to women specifically so that they could sell women razors too, realizing that, you know, there's a large untapped market that nobody was going after and that they could go after. And as I point out in the book, that took a lot of work because there were, there were decades, if not centuries, of kind of cultural association between men and blades that made it pretty difficult for women to want to pick up a razor. It, it was seen as sort of um, degendering or, you know, non-feminine to be holding a, a razor in the early 20th century. So Gillette had to sort of climb over that hurdle. And in their first ads for the razors they were marketing towards women, they of course don't say anything about the sharpness of the blade like you see in ads for men razors, you know, and often for razors marketed towards men now. Um, and they don't even use the word razor in all, most of the ads. They, you know, have fancy other words or something to, to describe what it is that they're advertising. 
part of the reason why I'm not so sold on the giant conspiracy theory that there's a, a group of, you know, men sitting around trying to convince women and femmes to, to remove all their hair is because, you, you know, people who identify as women or femmes tend to remove their hair on their own and they tend to describe it as something they're doing just for themselves, for their own reasons of self-enhancement or pleasure or satisfaction and that sort of thing. And you could definitely say, well, they're all just victims of false consciousness and they don't realize it, but that starts to get sort of problematic <laughs> sort of fast if you assume that all the people who understand, who think they understand why they're doing what they're doing are just dupes, but only, only the women. <laughs> are the dupes and none of the men, you know, that, that starts to become a problematic analysis, I think. I'm not sure what I think of this idea. Like, on the one hand, yeah, having smooth legs is awesome. They feel great. I also get a certain amount of satisfaction from the ritual of shaving. But sometimes it's hot, I'm busy, and I'd rather go out in shorts without having to shave. And that's when the societal pressure kicks in. Like, I could do it, but I'd face consequences that men don't face. And I'm a cis woman. This issue is magnified for trans women. Like, on the one hand, all the technology we have for hair removal is great for people transitioning. To have therapies that you can use to do that are, and I, you know, I would advocate for access to, say, laser hair removal as a therapy, especially for trans people. It's been essential for mental health and well-being and gender uh, affirmation and everything else. But I also think it'd be, you know, if I if I were to advocate, it would be the idea that you could have hair wherever it was and be identified by whatever gender, racial, or ethnic identity you wanted to be identified with. You know, that's obviously a pipe dream. We use hair specifically to classify and categorize and stratify people. But it would be nice if you could understand yourself and be understood socially, I think, as, as a girl, as a woman, without having to worry about making sure you appeared smooth in all the places that people expected you to appear smooth. And there's more and more people, genderqueer, um, non-binary, fluid people who are who are showing this and, and, you know, wearing their body hair however they want, maybe shaved in some places and not in others, maybe not groomed at all, maybe groomed meticulously in some days and not others, you know, who are playing around with this and saying, like, we have an ability to be the gender we understand and experience ourselves to be without worrying about, you know, maintaining hair in a certain binary way that kind of maps onto that. And I find that really exciting. And that's been more possible with social media representations of that kind of possibility. And people can see this just by looking at, you know, all the photos of people who are growing out their armpit hair and dyeing it, you know, really vivid colors and taking pictures of it and showing it or long tracks of hair on their stomachs and taking pictures of that, you know, which, which wouldn't have been possible before the rise of social media that, and the kind of circulation of those images. So it feels like there's maybe some exciting new possibilities, but in the meantime, there's still a lot of money being made pushing 
binary hair removal practices. You know, men can have mustaches and beards and, you know, a little bit of hair on their chest, maybe not too much and not, you know, elsewhere. This is the assumption. And then women are supposed to remove it on their on their legs and on their faces and pretty much everywhere else that it's visible other than the top of the head. When you think about the fact that body hair has been used as a reason for colonizing people, institutionalizing people, and just generally marginalizing people, it starts to feel kind of nefarious. Like, is hair removal just a convenient means of controlling people? I don't know. Maybe that's the case with a lot of things, though, right? (laughs) Pick pick a topic, you know, voting, food, (laughs) housing, like, you know, there are often ways of arranging people and classifying people and ranking them hierarchically and then making sure they stay in the places that they've been arranged hierarchically. But yeah, body, body hair hasn't been separate from those other things in that regard. But one of the things that makes it cool and a little bit different than some of the other topics that, you know, say social scientists like to focus on is that because it's on, you know, most everybody's bodies, not everybody, you know, some people don't have any body hair at all. Um, people can manipulate it on their own for their own purposes. You know, they can just sit around and pluck out hairs between their fingers and change things um, themselves, you know, in a, just an immediate visible way. And it it does make it a place for great creativity and experimentation um, in that way that larger, more fixed social structures don't have, including larger, larger, more fixed structures of the body. It's pretty hard to say, remove your own teeth. Not impossible. People do do it. But, you know, in cultures that remove teeth or file teeth as a form of social display, they usually have somebody else do it. But your hair, you can manipulate it yourself. It's certainly after a certain age, most people can manipulate it themselves. And that makes it a lot easier to experiment with. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lapotka of DLC Music. Thank you so much to Rebecca Helzig for taking the time to talk to me. I mean, who knew a conversation about hair removal could be so fascinating? There's a lot more where that came from, so you should definitely pick up her book. It's called Plucked, A History of Hair Removal, and there's a link to it in the show notes. And speaking of our conversation, it went longer than I had time to include in this episode. So if you'd like to read what Rebecca has to say about hair removal methods, especially a cutting-edge approach using genetic therapy, you should subscribe to the brand new newsletter. It's at taboosciencesshow slash newsletter, although you can find a link to it in the show notes as well. I'll be sending little extra nuggets like that one with every episode from now on. Again, taboosciencesshow slash newsletter. That's it. The next episode will be in two weeks. Catch you then. <laughs>